My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Well, good morning. This is Lane Jones, pastor of Calkins Baptist Church, speaking for the Beacon of Hope broadcast. This week we're going to begin really the first part of a message on Romans 13, which deals with three simple commands for the Christian. But for those of you that are interested in politics, this first seven verses of chapter 13 is a section of the scriptures that really deals with those issues of, of politics and how we get along with governing authorities. Could be governmental leaders, could be social leaders, or boss at work, could be your teacher at school. All of those really come under these first seven verses. And so I can tell you up front that Many times as Christians, we are in violation of a lot of the principles that come out of this text and really should help us to understand not only how to relate to political and governmental leaders, but to people that God has over us in other areas of life as well. And so I pray that you'll take some time to listen in on this one, and may God help us all to not only hear what he has to say, but to determine to follow and obey it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for those that will listen. Bless them for it. I pray you give us understanding. Your word cuts into our hearts on this one, I really believe, especially in our culture and context. So we pray that we be faithful to listen to what you say and believe and, and follow it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me just go ahead and read you the passage, and then we'll begin to talk about it. Romans chapter 13, I'm reading verses 1 to 7. It says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be afraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for your conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So what we see here in this passage, and it really follows through the rest of the chapter, is that God's commands are not really too complex to understand but they are too holy to follow without the power of Christ. As we get into this, I think you'll see it's pretty easy for us as Christians even to get out of whack when it comes to what God is telling us to do here. And the major focus of this passage is that Christians are commanded to submit to governmental authorities or whatever authority God places over your life. Now, a couple major questions need to be addressed about this, though. And the first one is, why should we be submissive? And that's an important question to ask. There's about five different reasons why we should be submissive to authorities that God puts over us. And then we're going to ask the question, how does the Christian live in submission to his government? So let's get right into it. Let's talk about the, the five reasons why we should be submissive to our government. The first one is that God is the source of all human authority. And again, when I say government, I'm not merely talking about United States government or state government or, or county, police. I'm talking about whatever authorities God has put over you. Could be your teacher at school. Could be your pastor in church. Could be a number of different people that God has in your life, bosses at work, 
township supervisor that you have an obligation to obey what they ask you to do. They have a, a legitimate right to tell you what to do in a certain area of your life. And so why is it that we should be submissive to these people? Well, again, the first reason is God is the source of all human authority. Now, we need to talk about God's sovereignty over human affairs and how this works, because it's really a little bit more complex, I think, than a lot of people realize. First of all, we are told clearly in Scripture that God has ultimate say over all that happens on the earth. So nothing is going to happen without his permission. Let me give you a couple of verses on this to show you what I'm talking about. Psalm 75, verse 6 and 7 says this, For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. So we see that God ultimately is the one who determines who gets in positions of authority. Listen to Daniel chapter 4. This is really wild. Verse 17, the prophet Daniel speaking, he says, In order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of man, gives it to whomever he will, and he sets over it the lowest of men. Now, isn't that interesting? God says here clearly that I determine who's going to be in positions of authority, and many times he's putting in those positions what he calls the lowest of men. I would submit to you that, especially as you get toward higher ranks of authority, many times that is the case. It's unfortunate, but often if it is true. Listen to Amos chapter 3, and I'm reading verse 6. It says, If a trumpet is blown in a city... Will not the people be afraid? Now, that trumpet he's talking about, not somebody playing on the street corner. He's talking about when there's a warning of an attack. And so, obviously, when the trumpet of warning is blowing in the city, that causes everyone to, to uh, be fearful. Then he goes on, is there, if there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? And the answer is, it's, it's a rhetorical question, the answer we're supposed to understand is yes, the fact that God is in even very difficult, very tragic situations. Why do we say that? Because as the sovereign of the entire earth, nothing can happen without him checking off on it. It's approval. It doesn't mean God's doing everything, but he certainly has at least allowed it. Now, you say, well, why would God allow bad things to happen? Now, that's a fair question. Let me go to a second thing about God's sovereignty over human affairs. Not only is he the governor overall, so he will determine if something is allowed, but number two, he has chosen to allow Satan to have a major influence in both the leaders chosen and the decisions of human government. Now, again, this can be very distressing to you. You may say, why would God allow Satan to have any say in what goes on in human government. Now, that's going to come to our third point, but let's, first of all, establish why this is true and, and the fact that it is true. I'll give you some examples. In Luke chapter 4, verses 5 to 7, Satan is talking to Christ. He's trying to tempt him to sin. Listen to what he says. Then the devil takes him up on a high mountain, takes Christ, shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And I would tell you that Satan made that temptation because, unfortunately, a lot of people have fallen for that. The idea of power. If you'll sell your soul to me, I'll give you power. The reasons why Satan could 
make this claim is because in many cases he can determine who gets into power in countries and in major places of authority. You say, why would that happen? Well, let me again establish what I'm talking about. I'm reading now out of John chapter 12 and verse 31. Now, remember, these are the words of Christ himself. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So Jesus calls Satan here the ruler of this world. Listen to Jesus again, John chapter 14 and verse 30. He says this, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. In John chapter 16 and verse 11, there's a similar statement. Jesus says this, of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Three different times, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 53, when they're arresting Jesus, that Jesus says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. Satan certainly does have a lot of power in this world in which we live. Let me read two more passages just to establish this truth that Satan really does have a high degree of control on this planet right now. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. It says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age, notice Satan's called the God of this age, has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine to them. So Satan in, in 2 Corinthians 4 is called the God of the sage. Then one more passage. It's 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19, where the apostle John writes this, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Now, when he says the whole world, he's not saying every individual. He's talking about the fact that all across the world and tragically, the majority of people on the world are under the sway, the lies of the wicked one. So here's the question I know many of you are asking at this point. Why does Satan have such great power and authority over human government? And why is he allowed to place many wicked people in positions of high authority? Well, the reason why is because of our third main thought about the source of authority across the world. The first one we know is that God has ultimate say over all that happens on the earth. We also know, secondly, that God has allowed Satan to have a major influence in both leadership and decisions of human government. But why is that so? Because of number three, God has chosen to allow man to decide much about who rules him. You see, you and I will be making choices as human beings. And the tragedy is that many times even God's own people are making foolish choices and following the devil's lies and the lies of people around them. And so the reason why Satan has such great power is because there are so many people that are following him and his lies across the planet. And God has given mankind the right to choose, the right to make choices. So what choices are we making and how is this influencing the political, the governmental, the authority aspects of life on earth? Well, first of all, we're going to choose who who our God is going to be. That's true of an individual, that's true of masses of people, it's true of nations of the earth. If a nation is mostly made up of people who do not want the true God ruling them, and if the people of God who are in that nation have very little say, or maybe they don't even walk with God closely, God is often going to allow Satan then, who's deceiving the vast majority of people, he's going to allow Satan to have great sway in that nation. That's, again, most of the world. What kind of leaders does Satan typically choose? What would you expect him to choose when he is given 
sway because that's what the people of that country want. Well, you're going to expect exactly what Daniel said. He's going to put the lowest of men there. Now, they may be people of powerful character as far as being able to do violence. They may be people who have wisdom in warfare or wisdom in trickery, but they're low people. As far as God is concerned, they're not the right kind of leaders. So we get the choice. We get the choice as individuals. We get a choice as masses of people that make up nations as to who our God is going to be. We also get a choice as whether or not we want to obey God's laws. And I want to take you to a passage in Jeremiah chapter 18, where Jeremiah is living through some real tragic days in his land. The nation of Israel will be conquered three different times by the Babylonian Empire within a few years of each other, eventually resulting in the destruction of the Jewish temple, the carting off of their king into slavery, the almost complete destruction of the royal line. It, there was, it was just a horrific time period in which to live. And Jeremiah was trying in the middle of this time period, actually before the third invasion takes place, he's trying to warn the people to repent and giving them some hope that, that if they would just turn to the Lord, they would find mercy. So listen to Jeremiah chapter 18, starting with verse 1. It says, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise, go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. So as Jeremiah is going down there, and he watches this potter sitting at his wheel, forming a, a piece of pottery, what he noticed is the first attempt didn't work out well. And so the potter takes the clay back and begins to smash it together again, and he maybe puts a little more water on it or something, and then he puts it back on the wheel, and he's trying again to make something, something different than he made the first time. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, says the Lord. Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel." The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon them. Now that would give you all kinds of hope, because the reality is the nation of Israel was under God's judgment, and God was saying, look, I can take you just like I, uh, a potter would take a piece of clay, and I can remake you into something better. But that works not only for the nation of Israel, he says concerning any nation. So he's using nations across the world here. That would include our own. Now he says something else. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. So God says, this works both ways. I can be blessing a nation, putting my hand upon a nation and exalting it. But if that nation turns its back on me, I can turn right around and take all those blessings away. Can I, can I say to you, I really believe that's where we are at as a country right now. We have been blessed by our Christian heritage, our, many of our forefathers, not, I would say, necessarily the majority of them, but a good amount of people in this country were God-fearing and were trying to follow the Lord. And Many of them, we will never know their names. They were people who lived and died, raised their children, walked with God, loved the Lord, were faithful in their church, served God the best of their ability. And again, their names aren't necessarily blazed across the history books, but that culture of 
dedicated Christians who were trying to walk with God had an impact upon their society. But tragically, in recent generations, we've begun to forget our moorings. We've begun to get away from the real anchors of God's Word and God's truth that were establishing us as a people. And yes, we've always had people that did wrong and and leaders that went the wrong direction. But I am convinced that because of the undertow of a godly Christian remnant in this land, God has blessed us in ways that were unimaginable. But that blessing, it can turn around just like the potter holding the clay. He says, now, if that nation wants to turn its back on me, then they're not going to be blessed any longer. I I can start to judge them. And if you look at the decisions that we've been making as a people, when many in our country, maybe even the majority in our country, think that it's perfectly fine to take a baby in the womb and to kill that child. There are other people that are trying to say, well, marriage isn't between a man and a woman, and marriage isn't supposed to be for life, and we're taking God's laws concerning marriage and the family, and we're playing with them like it's some kind of a toy. And the reality is that those decisions, throwing off God's laws to say, we don't want that. We don't want God telling us whether we're male or female. We don't want God telling us who we're to marry. Those kind of decisions have an impact. And may I just say that you can't change necessarily what your neighbor thinks, but God holds you accountable for what you think and what you do. He holds you accountable for living up to his standards. And a godly remnant of people have a tremendous influence upon a society. But if we as a nation, as a people, want to say, by and large, now we don't want God. We don't want his rules. We don't want his laws. We want to throw them off. We think we're more free without them. Well, go ahead. But here's what God says. He says, I can, I can take that nation that I was blessing and I can turn it around and it can lose all those benefits. Now, keep reading. I'm, I'm in verse 11. He says, now, therefore, speak to the men of Judah, and that's the nation of, Jer- of Jeremiah's day, and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, thus says the Lord, behold, I am fashioning a disaster, devising a plan against you. Return now every one of you from his evil way and make your ways and doings good. He's saying, I give you this promise, just like the potter can remake that vessel of clay on the wheel, I'm right now preparing you to be destroyed, but if you'll turn, I can change that. That's what God is saying to these people. What was their reaction to that offer of hope that if they would repent and turn back to their God, that the Lord would be merciful? And they said, this is hopeless, So we will walk according to our own plans, and we will, everyone, obey the dictates of his evil heart. What the society in Jeremiah's day basically told Jeremiah and ultimately told the Lord is, ah, that won't work. God's not going to help us if we repent. It's not going to make that much of a difference. We might as well just keep living like we're living and hope for the best. That's what Jeremiah's generation told him. And let me just say this. I have heard many times Christian people, and tragically I've heard preachers, people who say they believe the scriptures, and I believe they do, who have said something like what this generation told Jeremiah, and that is, it's hopeless. God's going to judge us. We've gone too far. And can I just say, I do not see that in scripture. Jeremiah, in the middle of a very ungodly generation, said, look, if you'll turn right now, God can take you like a pot on a uh, wheel that's being formed for clay. He can turn that around and make you into a vessel of blessing. I want you to think about the entire book of Jonah is about this. Here's a nation, a very evil nation called the Assyrian Empire, and Jonah is sent to that place. They were within 40 days of being destroyed. 
And Jonah's message was not one of hope. It was simply 40 days and Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And yet God worked in the hearts of those people. They responded to that warning. And as ungodly a culture as that was, they turned their back on what they had been doing wrong. They repented and God was merciful to them. And I do not accept that we have gone too far. I do not think that God will not be merciful to us if we repent. I think it's a lie. I think it's the wrong thing to be teaching people. And I hope that you'll have hope in your heart. But there's again, you can't change your neighbor. You can change yourself because our God does rule in the kingdom of men. That hasn't changed. And he still is offering mercy to those who will turn. But those who reject his authority, what happens to them? Well, let me just talk to you briefly about what used to be called the USSR. Here's a nation, Russia, and of course other satellites that would come underneath them, that many of that culture decided, no, there isn't even any God. We're not responsible to anyone. We're just going to buy into this whole thing that there's the oppressed and the oppressors, and we're going to overthrow the oppressors. By the way, that is all over our college campuses today in this country right now. And so this idea that there's the oppressed and the oppressors, and we got to get rid of all the oppressors, resulted in, think of the leaders they got. Lenin, who is a murderous man, on his heels was Stalin, who resulted in tens of millions in the Soviet Union being, first of all, starved to death. Then many of those people, they had quotas, folks. You ought to read the Gulag Archipelago by Solzhenitsyn. They had quotas in regions where they had to send people off to prison, even if it was for no reason. And they would send them off there basically to try to prop up their economy that was so out of whack because of communism. And so they used slave labor from these gulags, worked those people to death. That's the kind of leadership they got. And what's amazing, Solzhenitsyn, who was himself one of those prisoners, and his crime, by the way, was that he was in World War II and he had actually correspondence with someone from the West who was like a cousin or something. And for the crime of corresponding with someone from the free world, he was sent to the gulag. Now, while he's there, he's running into people who are atheists, who are all into communism, and their thought was, well, they just made a mistake. You know, once they'll get it right, they'll release me. That wasn't the intent at all. They didn't realize that when you turn your back on God and, and, and let Satan have control of your country, guess what you're going to get in power? The lowest of men. Think about Germany, Adolf Hitler. Did you know that before Hitler ever comes to power, there's a movement in Germany that really spreads across much of the world, which was called higher criticism. It was a, an attack upon the authority of Scripture. They funneled that through much of the world. We got caught up with it. That's where you can walk into many churches today, and you'd think that you'd hear something from the Bible, and the guy standing up in front of you tragically doesn't even believe the book that he's supposed to teach you out of. And he'll tell you some story, but he's not teaching out of the Word of God. Why? Because much of the roots go back to Germany, and the, the teaching, that the scriptures are not authoritative, they're not really inspired by God. Also, the anti-Semitism started not with Hitler, although he certainly was a major mover in that, but the whole idea of anti-Semitism is being propagated through newspapers and periodicals in Germany for years before Hitler comes to power. Yeah, when you turn your back on God, and you turn your back 
on what his laws say. And you say, well, I want to do my own thing. Well, that's a choice that we as individuals are given by God to make. We, we can make that choice if we want to, but there are consequences that come with it. And with the new God, who ultimately is Satan, which is why John will say all the world's under his sway, and because the vast majority of people are following something else, whether it be their own set of morality, whether it be their own religion, whatever it is, but they're not following the true God. And with that comes satanic bondage. So the people of the nation decide if they want to follow God and his laws or not. They also decide if they want to follow Satan's lies. And lies in our countries, such as, again, a baby's worth is determined by his location. So if he's in the womb, he's fair game to kill. If he's outside the womb, then it's murder. And the child could actually be older inside the womb. And yet the location determines his value. Are we really that blind? You see, that's, that's what Satan will do. And then when we refuse to obey God's laws, well, we're going to get, we're going to get the leaders we deserve. Now, I will tell you this, and I'm glad, grateful for this, that at times God has granted a nation good leadership, even though they didn't deserve it. And I think there much of that lies in God's favor upon those who are praying for their nation. In Solomon's day, there was a guy named Hiram who was a king of a, of a neighboring country, and he specifically told Solomon, you know, God loves you. That's why he put you on the throne, and God loves your people. That's why you're on the throne. Solomon would bring great prosperity, bring great justice to, to Israel. In Judges chapter 2, God told of the fact that he would raise up leaders uh, because his, his pity for his people who were groaning under bad leadership. So there are times when God graciously grants a good a good or great leader to a nation. And let me just give you some biblical examples of this. Moses, who leads the children of Israel out of Egypt. Samuel, who's both a judge and a prophet. King David, one of the greatest leaders of all time. Daniel, who although he wasn't in authority over his own people, God placed him in the very court of the king Nebuchadnezzar, who, had, who destroyed the nation of Israel, and God used Daniel in a mighty way even in that time. Nehemiah, who comes back as a, a Jewish man and helps them rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. These are all, and there are many more that we could add, leaders that God in his graciousness and goodness brought in to a, a people, even though they didn't deserve it. But I'm sure many were praying for God's merciful hand upon God's people. Now, how do these truths that affect the Christian attitude toward his government? Well, we should see God's good hand behind human government. Many people think that government is your enemy. And I get that we don't want a big government. I, I completely agree with that. But I would just say this, that you need government, that it's a good thing. We need police officers. And no, they're not always going to make the right choice. They're not always going to get every case right. They're, but we need them. Uh, let me just show you some things about, do you have a, a piece of property, maybe a house? Well, I'll just say this, your safety and security is because there's not anarchy out there. There's a government that says, you know, if somebody tries to break into your house, there's things that can be done to that person. They can put them away. They can investigate, find out who did it. They could find them. Uh, there's lots of different things that government can do to help secure your uh, house and property. Do you have a car? Well, why can't people steal it? Or what about traffic laws? Where do they come from? You know, isn't it nice that when you go to a red light and, and it turns green, 
Now, you'd probably look both ways, but the vast majority of times in our country, if you go through that intersection when it's green, you're going to be safe. Now, I will tell you that that's because of a government law that tells people to stop on the red. Many of us don't want to do it, but we do it anyway. How about, do, do you like driving on good roads? I mean, many times we have potholes in Pennsylvania, but I'll just tell you this. If you have roads that are good at all, where did that? Where did they come from? Well, they came from funds from the government. People worked on it because of government funding. How, how about money? Do you realize if you have any cash in your wallet, that's because there's a governmental system of finance. Uh, do you have items that you like that you bought that you really want to hang on to? Uh, maybe it's a, a nice uh, sound equipment that you have, or maybe it's some other uh, nice thing that you have in your house that you really enjoy. Well, do you realize the government sets laws that protect your personal property? Uh, well, do you like being able to go to the grocery store and buy food? Why don't we have to have a castle, you know, where, you, where there's a huge wall like they did in the uh, medieval era, and so we can protect our food? I've been in Honduras, and this is probably 20-some oh, years ago. And at that time, at that time in Honduras, there's guys standing with machine guns on their, uh, uh, in their hands as you go into the grocery store. That's the, when you have a weak government, that's what you can be up against. So these are blessings that we have. Not that we want a huge, powerful government that tells us everything. I, I get that. But there are certain things that are functions of the government for which we all are blessed, that we're not in anarchy, that you don't have to pull a gun on anybody that tries to take something. God is gracious to give us human government. Aren't you glad when you go to school that you hopefully have teachers that keep order in the classroom? That's a form of government in that area. Or if you have a child and he's just being completely out of control, and so the other kids are not able to learn well, the teacher can then take that child and bring in a principal or a counselor, someone. And again, there's a system. There's a there's a system of authority so that the children can learn. What about zoning boards? You say, well, oh, I hate zoning boards. They're telling me what to do with my property. And I get that you got to be careful on this. But let me ask you this. Yeah, what if your neighbor decides, well, I'm going to build a nuclear waste dump and they can make all kinds of money. Um, and they're not even thinking about what it's going to do to you. And maybe you're, you're well water, and you understand, like, there are purposes for some of these things. What about county leadership? Well, I'm glad that we have county leadership because I don't really want Harrisburg making all my decisions. And I'm also glad that we have state leadership in Harrisburg because I really don't want Washington, D.C. making all the decisions. And so we have different layers, different levels of human government, and those things really are overall not to be something negative, but they're to be a blessing. Aren't you glad that kids don't have to raise themselves? Can you imagine how bad that would be? If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. But instead, there is a God-given system of the parents having authority over those kids. And by the way, those that try to undo this, it's utter foolishness. Children need guidance. They need adults that'll step in. And are there bad examples of adults? Absolutely, no doubt about it. But overall, and their children are blessed to have parents that love them and will raise them and help them to learn how to function in this world. So our need as Christians is 
to respect these areas of authority. How about in the workplace? You know, there's some people that just can't, they just can't seem to find it in themselves to submit to their boss. As Christians, that's not wise. That's not good. We as Christians ought to realize, look, if I'm not the boss, God didn't make me the boss. I don't have to be the boss at that point. And so the boss asks me to do something I don't like, that's fine. As long as I'm working for that company, I ought to be good with it. You say, well, so-and-so gets a more pre- preference than I do. They get easier jobs than I do. Fine. As a Christian, I'm not really worried about that. I'm not the boss. God didn't make me the boss. There's good and bad about being the boss. And so guess what? My job is God gave me this job. I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. As Christians, do we really think like that? Do we really respect the fact of where God placed us, appreciate that, and not try to be something that we're not? Now, again, if God gives you an opportunity to move up the ladder, no problem. But I'll tell you this, you'll be a better boss if you're a good employee. And I'll tell you something else. If you're a good employee, you got a better shot at being a boss one day. Because they're not going to hire the guy that's always just rebelling and and is a mess. And everybody's got to keep a handout. It's a good way to get um, unemployment, but uh, not a good way to be a Christian in the workplace. So to resist authority structures above you, God says is actually to resist God's law. And specifically, he's talking here about governmental authority. He says it this way, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So this principle obviously has limits. It doesn't mean that whatever a person in authority says, that should be done. Let me get, take you to a sports example. All right, so I coach a, a basketball team, a little homeschooler group, um, that that number of families that have homeschooled kids, so they don't have a normal a team to play on, so I coach them. All right, now, as their coach, I expect that they're going to listen to me when I ask them to do something, and, and I've got a great group of kids, and they do that. But let's just say I come up with this wacky idea, and I say, okay, kids, we're going to have a special activity on Saturday. Hope you all can make it. We're going to go down to the uh, Viewmont Mall there in Scranton, and we're going to try to steal as many things out of the stores as we can, you know, just as a joke, and we're going to take them out, and then we're going to divide them up among ourselves just for a good time of fun and, and relaxation on a Saturday. Now, let me ask you a question. In, in, in that context, is that uh, child who I'm coaching, are they obligated to do that because I'm their coach? Well, the obvious answer is no. Why? Because there's a higher law. You see, my authority is over them as a basketball team on the basketball court or on the practice floor. I get to tell them what to do. But I don't, first of all, have authority to tell them what to do off of that. And then secondly... If I'm asking them, even as their coach, to do something that is immoral or illegal, I'm out of my realm. So if I say to a young person on the bench, even during a game, well, this guy is scoring a lot of points. I want you to go out there and I want you to tackle him and and hurt him and take him out of the game. What should that player do? He should tell me, coach, I can't do that. I can't do that. Now, if you're in the military or have been in the military, you understand what I'm talking about. Members of the military are not obligated to follow an order that is in direct violation of the U.S. Constitution. I don't know if you knew that. So if a general gets mad at the president and says, well, we're going to form a plan and we're going to overthrow the president, his 
the, the people under him, although they would be obligated under any other circumstance, when he tries to get them to do something that is unconstitutional, they have not only the right, but the duty to say, no, sir, we will not do that. Well, it's the same thing with any other area of authority. If you can think of it like umbrellas, the ultimate largest umbrella is God's authority, and that goes over everything. But then there are other spheres of authority, other umbrellas. There's governmental authority, there's parental authority, there's church authority. Any authority that gets out of its realm and asks you to violate a higher authority is something that you not only do not need to do, but it's something that you shouldn't do. So if parents, children ought to obey their parents. I teach the teens on a weekly basis in our church. And one of the things we've been talking about is, is uh, relationships with their parents. And I've been telling them, now, if your parent asks you to do something that is wrong, you would have an obligation to disobey that. So if they said, listen, I want you to go down on the corner, I want you to sell these drugs, that would be wrong. And you'd have to say, no, mom and dad, I can't, I love you, but I can't do that. I can't sell drugs for you. Now, if your parent, though, asks you to do something that isn't wrong, but it's something you don't like, let's say that you really wanted to go to this party on Friday night, all your friends are going to be there. It looks like it's a good time. Maybe it's not even anything gonna, bad going to happen. There's no alcohol. There's nothing like that. It's just going to be a good party. But your parents, for whatever reason, good or bad, they say, no, we don't want you to go. Now, again, you don't like what they've said, but they're not asking you to do something wrong. You need to obey them. That's what we teach our kids, and that's exactly the way it ought to be. So in a governmental sense, when the government asks me to do something inconvenient, I ought to do it. Um, many of us don't like to pay a certain level of taxes. I get that. Paul clearly says to pay your taxes here. But if they're asking me to do something wrong, then I have an obligation to not do that. A couple examples. Daniel was told by the, um, uh, the people of his day, it was the king of uh, Darius, that not to pray for 30 days. Daniel violated that law. That's why he's thrown in the lion's den, by the way. The three Hebrew children, same, same basic time period, told by King Nebuchadnezzar, you got to bow to this idol. They stand there, will not bow. They go to the fiery furnace as a result of that. God miraculously delivered them. Doesn't many times do that for people. He did in that case. I'll give you another example from the New Testament. Peter and the apostles are told, do not preach anymore in Jesus' name. And their answer is found in Acts chapter 5 and verse 29. We ought to obey God rather than men. So we have authority structures that are set up in society. Same thing at work. Your boss asks you to do something inconvenient, something you don't want to do. He asks you something even that's unfair. Somebody else has less work and he's piloted on you. Ought to do it. If he asks you to lie... If he asks you to change numbers on a form so that the IRS is going to tax them less, that you can't do. As Christians, we are obligated to follow the authority structures unless they get out of line and they ask us to do something against a higher authority, and then we have the obligation to say no. So disobeying the government um, brings consequences upon yourself. And so many Christians have had to be in this spot where literally their country is saying, no, you can't do this. What do you do at that point? You can't witness for Christ. Well, Christians 
have violated the government's rules at that point because they have a higher law. But let's remember what he says here. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. Now, that's as long as they are under the, the authority of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So let's just take um, an inconvenience for many of you, and let's say the seatbelt law, which I don't know that there's anything moral uh, on that issue. You can debate that if you want to. But there's a seatbelt law. And let's just say that you say to yourself, well, I don't like that law. I don't want to obey it. Okay, what he's saying is this. If you want to resist the authority, you're driving down the road, and a police officer says, oh, his inspection's out of, out of line, or maybe see something else, and he pulls you over, and all of a sudden he notices there's no seatbelt. Hey, you made your own problem. You're bringing the fine on yourself. If you want to speed down the road and you get pulled over, well, guess what? You brought consequences on yourself. That's his point. Disobeying the government brings consequences upon yourself. That's rule number, reason number three to obey them. Number four is rulers are ministers of God to bless you. And I think many times, even as Christians, we don't see it that way. He goes on. He says, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. I mean, normally we don't get pulled over for doing good. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evils. So rulers are ministers of God to bless you, and as ministers of God, isn't it interesting they're called ministers here? Authorities make evildoers afraid. That's a good thing. So even you and I, who are law-abiding citizens, you ever go through an intersection and all of a sudden you look over and there was a police car, you didn't see it? There's a little jump that goes through your heart. Now, again, if you're going the speed limit, hopefully that doesn't last very long, but in all probability, you probably checked your speed. Or let's say you went through on a yellow and you thought, well, is that a good idea? And all of a sudden you see the police officer. Well, again, he is there to put fear in the hearts of those who would do evil. And that's a good thing because if someone wants to just violate the law, you want them to have some fear of the consequences. He also has the power to punish the evildoers. So many evil people are put in jail where they cannot harm others, and that is a blessing as well. Uh, we had a, a fella in our community, oh, probably about four or five years ago, who was actually trying to break into several houses. I don't know if he was uh, high on drugs, if he was drunk, or just just trying to rob people. And he was going after older people's houses. Some of these uh, ladies in the community, thank the Lord, they didn't open their door. He knocked, and again, this is like one or two in the morning. He knocked at a house uh, not very far from where I live, and an older man comes to the door and had a gun. And this man does not want to use that gun, but he realizes at one thirty in the morning or so, I, I better be prepared for anything. And that young fella tried to break into his house. And the man did have to shoot the guy. He didn't, he didn't hurt, uh, kill him at all, but he did put him out of commission until the police could get there. Now, rulers are, and the authorities, they, they arrested that guy. They, they did not prosecute the older man. They realized that he was just defending his house. His wife is inside there. He had every right to do that. But again, when you lock that guy up, he had a, by the way, that, that guy had a long list of offenses that he had committed in other places. And so, again, you get him off the street. You get him 
into a place where hopefully he can get some help and uh, maybe God will get a hold of his heart. Many evil people are put in jail. And that's the right and the duty of the government. There are times when he says he does not bear the sword in vain, when the government may have to, uh, again, we may have to have a war. There may have to be an execution, those type of things. The government is given that authority, not us. And that's a blessing. When you think about it, we as Christians are not given an, a vigilante system. We're told to respect the authority that God has given. So how do we as Christians live in submission to this government? He says this, Therefore you must be subject not only for, because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. So that's the fifth and last reason why we need to submit to governmental authority, and that is because we want to have a clear conscience. I want to realize that I'm obeying God, and part of obeying God is obeying my governmental authorities as long as they're not asking me to do something that is evil. Now, how does a Christian then live this life in submission? First of all, he says, pay your taxes, for because of this, you also pay taxes. Say, well, I think they're too high. I'm going to cheat on my taxes. Nope, that's not right. As a Christian, what's the higher law? Honesty. Shall not lie. Don't bear false witness. Okay, then tell the truth on your tax form pay your taxes. You say, well, I think they're going to misuse the funds. That's on them. It's not on you. We as Christians are obligated to pay our taxes. We're also obligated to pay other fees. He mentions custom to whom customs are due, and he's talking about other fees. Uh, you don't try to wiggle out on those. He mentions follow appropriate respect. He says, render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear. So where we uh, where we have respect for, um, for instance, if I'm going to talk to the president of the United States or talk about him, I don't use his first name. I, he's the president. And so I'm going to I'm going to refer to him by that title, President Biden. Now, I could call him President Joe Biden. That's not a problem, but I'm not going to use slanderous names or, or, or uh, mimicking. I'm not going to do that because I want to give honor, to, not because necessarily I agree with any, everything that that President Biden has done. I really don't but because I respect the office. And there's honor to whom honor is due. So we as Americans often show disrespect for governmental leaders with whom we disagree. This is not biblical. We're called upon instead to respect the person holding that spot because as a general rule, they are working for our good. We're glad that government is there we're glad for the roads, we're glad for the commerce, we're glad for the uh, supply of safety and, and, and that can help us to prosper. And so these are all taught in Romans 13. I'm going to take you to one passage really to kind of wrap this up, and that is about praying for your government. It's in First Peter, excuse me, First Timothy chapter 2. And here's what he says, I exhort therefore, first of all, that supplications, that's specific prayers, Prayers, that'd be more of a general thing. Intercessions, that's going to God on behalf of somebody, maybe who's not even praying. And giving of thanks be made for all men. So we can pray for anybody we want to on the planet, and that's a good thing. Intercede on their behalf, thank God for them, that's all good. But then he goes on from there, for kings and for all who are in authority. So, okay, you got authority leaders in your life, maybe you don't like them, maybe you don't like how your boss is behaving. Maybe you don't like what the township supervisor told you had to do um, in, a, in some kind of an area locally. Maybe you don't like what your senator is doing. Are you praying for him? He says, pray for these people who are in authority. 
that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So why ought we to be praying specifically for our leaders, your principal, your teacher, your, uh, again, whoever it is that is in a place of authority over you? First of all, for your own benefit. God says that you can actually have an easier life when you're praying for those who are over you. Number two, for God's pleasure. He says this is good and acceptable in the sight of God. And then thirdly, for your leader's salvation. Have you thought about that? Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if multitudes of people were praying for the salvation of our president and his family? You know, I think many of us know that Hunter Biden has been a troubled man for most of his life. He's He's been open about a drug addiction, and he's had he's definitely had problems. We know that. But how many people just spit on him? And I'm not at all agreeing with what he's done, but have we prayed for him? Have you really gone before God and said, Lord, would you change this this man's life? Would you, would you help him to repent and turn to you? Because you know what? It might be a way into his dad's heart too. And I just think as Christians, so many times we're so wrapped up in the things that really aren't going to matter in eternity, and we're not thinking about the souls of men and the souls of our leaders. So your boss is unfair. Pray for him. Pray that God will get a hold of his heart. You know what you'd find? As you begin to pray for people that are irritating you and, and not being good to you, as you begin to really seek out and pray to God about those kind of people, you know what you find God does? He changes your heart toward them. And he changes you. And then many times he also works in a wonderful way to change them. So let me give you some conclusions. Number one, God is ultimately in control of both the type of government that we're under as well as those who fulfill those positions of authority. And since most of you are probably U.S. citizens, let me apply this to you as Americans, as, and I'm one of you. And that is this. We need to see, guess who got the ultimate power in our country, which is highly unusual? We did. We get the chance to vote. We get the chance to have a voice. So many countries, so many peoples across human history haven't had that opportunity. They've been under a king. They've been under some kind of a dictator. God has given us the power. The powers that be are ordained of God. He's given us a tremendous voice in our government. And so we need to see this as a God-given opportunity to, to have an impact upon our nation. So use your God-given authority to promote good. Encourage people to vote, but to vote wisely, not just you know, a party. You need to be thinking about the issues, the spiritual issues of the day. Vote and vote wisely. Be involved. Some of you may need to run for office. There's nothing wrong with that. Maybe be a local position, maybe a school board, something else. Maybe it's a, a higher up, but the idea is simply this. Don't be afraid to be involved. Christians, I think, have walked out on their civic duty, and it's not something that we ought to be doing. God gave us this voice. We need to use it. Number two, authority positions are given by God and should be respected. You say, well, what about Satan putting in the lowest of people? Well, that's when we as a culture turn our backs on God. And again, I can't change my neighbor. I can change my own actions, and I can start living for God, and I pray that you will do the same as well. Thirdly, people in leadership positions were approved by God then should be respected. So even if I disagree with the president on many things, I'll tell you what, I'm glad what he's doing on the, the situation over in Israel. He's been very supportive. 
and he's taken heat from people in his own party. I appreciate that. Number four, no leader has a right to supersede God's authority. So if they ask us to do something that's in violation to God's word, we can't keep those laws. Number five, Christians should pray for their leaders before and after they get elected. Whether you liked the guy that got elected or not, for all that are in authority, he says, pray for the Supreme Court people. Pray for your senators. Pray for your representatives. Each week, we take a different governmental uh, leader in our church, and we pray for them uh, specifically. Number six, God wants to save all people even political leaders. And let me give you one example as we wrap this up. This is out of Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar, who was the guy that three times de uh, defeated the nation of Israel, carted uh, three different groups off into slavery, eventually uh, put the eyes out of the existing king. His name was Zedekiah, the last king of Israel. Uh, killed his sons before in front of him before he put his eyes out. This man was, was a absolute despot. But God put a certain guy in his kingdom, one of those Jewish captives, his name was Daniel. And I can almost guarantee you, Daniel prayed repeatedly for Nebuchadnezzar. Listen to what Nebuchadnezzar will say toward the end of his life. He says, at that time, I mean, Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 to 37, he says, that time I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High praised and honored him who lives forever. He's talking about the God of Israel. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can, can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. He had gone crazy for a while. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and, and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down and he's talking about himself. God has humbled me and saved me. And what an answer to prayer. If God can save a Nebuchadnezzar, can he not save political leaders, people in authority, bosses, school teachers, others all around us? He can. Dear Christian, uphold your governmental leaders in prayer. May the Lord bless you. If you would like some spiritual help, like counseling or prayer, feel free to contact us through our website. If you'd like to listen to this message again or send it to a friend, the link to our podcast is at radiobold.com slash Baptist. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. Lasting life and light, he frees.